Well, good morning. Would you join me as we do each week in opening up our Bibles together to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31, you can find that on page 71 on a blue pew Bible if you'd like to follow along with us there. So I am a big fan of listening to podcasts. Um, I, I, at this point in my life, just don't watch much TV. I watch a game here or there, but I love listening to podcasts, kind of the power of audio. You can also do it while you're doing some other things. And I like listening to all different kinds of podcasts, different genres, ones of faith, ones that are not of faith. Um, and really, in many ways, even as a pastor, it gives me a little bit of insight into our culture, a cultural worldview, do some cultural analysis. And so uh, one of the ones that I listen to often had a guest on, and, and really this one just has um, across the spectrum, likes having um, basically famous people on and get to know their lives and how they got to be with, where they are. Um, and there's one guy that they had on named Scooter Braun. Uh, I never knew his name before the podcast. I don't know if you do, but he is a basically a manager of celebrities, uh, particularly a lot of uh, musical talent. Um, he has, was the manager for Kanye, uh, Ariana Grande, uh, and then most notably Justin Bieber. And I never thought I'd open a sermon with Justin Bieber. <laughs> 2018, here we are. Um, but the, the podcast went in an inter interesting direction, and, and the, the, the guy who was leading it, the host, asked Scooter, you know, he had a question, he said, why is it that a lot of these celebrities, and he was refer referencing to Bieber in particular this case, who have real early success in their life, so as a teenager, early 20s, they just have a ton of success, they make a ton of money, they're totally A-list celebrities, why is it that oftentimes, they often at some point go off the rails? Why do they go crazy? Why do they have a lot of these issues and problems that they deal with? And uh, Scooter was talking about Justin Bieber, how he had a couple-year stretch. I think, thankfully, now he's not in this season. But he, as his manager, would go to bed at night not knowing whether or not that morning would be the one he'd wake up and realize that Justin was dead. It was just a couple years that he was just seemed like everything was going wrong, getting into a lot of things he shouldn't have been getting into. And then uh, the, the host asked, well, what changed? How did he kind of get out of this? And, and what Scooter said, and listen, uh, I did some background on Scooter. He's not a believer. He kind of has the spiritual, not religious crowd of everything. He's just fine. Whatever works for them, and that's fine. Uh, that's kind of the predominant worldview we hear in our culture. So he's not a believer in Jesus Christ. But he said this, and I had a moment. I don't know if I was drinking something or eating something, but like, you feel like you had to spit out of your mouth. I was so shocked that I heard it. And I wanted to share with what he said quote, I think Justin figured out something that we talk about all the time, that human beings were not made to be worshipped. I think we were made to serve. As human beings, we are here to serve one another. That's the only way we keep our sanity. When we hear a Fortune 100 CEO takes their own life, on one level we think, why would they do that with all they have? But if we're honest, we're really not surprised. On the other hand, if we heard a lifelong volunteer in the soup kitchen takes their own life, we think, okay, that makes no sense. And that is, be that is because people who serve don't go crazy. I almost spit my water out or coffee out because here's the thing, like he nailed it in a lot of ways. His application was spot on. The, the tragedy in that is that he's missing the source and the power that makes that possible. 
But we have two weeks remaining in our vision series, and then we have been unpacking, if you've been with us in recent weeks, kind of the why, how, and what of what we do here at Grace Church and why we do it. Um, our vision statement, uh, glorifying God by making disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, service, and mission. And we've just been taking week by week going through those different aspects of it. And we're in the midst now in this series of kind of laying out a roadmap of how people grow as disciples. So our primary purpose is to glorify God. How do we do that? We, we make disciples. Okay, what's our roadmap to make that happen at Grace Church? We've seen Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community. And this morning we have the opportunity to dig into Christ-centered service. And I want to see why serving, why, why serving one another, especially one another within the body of Christ, within the church, is such a central aspect to the process of following Jesus and growing in our relationship with Him. And, and in order to do so, we're, we're going to take a little bit of a roundabout way. I want to start in what is in many ways an obscure passage in the Old Testament. Preach and walk through this passage, and then at the end we'll kind of see how does that connect to Christ-centered service in the church. So would you uh, follow along with me as we read Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahazmach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of the sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So I want to take a few minutes to set up what is God talking about in Exodus 31. Uh, if you recall back, we're here for the week we looked at glorifying God. That was out of Exodus chapter 3. And in Exodus 3, God called this man Moses to be the one who would go into Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world at the time, and go to its leader, the Pharaoh, and say, let God's people go. Just walk in and say, I'm taking them out. 1.5 million men, women, and children who were his workforce. He said, I'm taking them out. The Israelites, I'm taking them out. And after God sent some plagues to aid Moses to make this happen, finally Pharaoh relents and says, all right, get out of here. And that happens in Exodus chapter 12. And then they cross the Red Sea, famous story we all know. They cross the Red Sea, God parts the waters. That happens in Exodus 14. And then they get down into the wilderness, down into the desert. In Exodus 19, they come to the base of this mountain called Mount Sinai. You know I'm a map guy. We got a map up here of kind of where they are. So top left, that's kind of Egypt. They, they, they kind of cross. This is where most commentators, historians think. They cross the kind of the top of the Red Sea, head down to where most people think Mount Sinai was. 
modern day, I'm, I, don't, I might ruin my geography here, Saudi Arabia-ish, um, whatever that nation is, is where Mount Sinai, where that red circle is. So they get to the base of this mountain, they're traveling, they're traveling, and God calls Moses to come to the top of Mount Sinai. And that is where, in Exodus 20, God famously gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Right? God, by his grace, saves a whole nation out of the uh, slavery, brings them into the wilderness, and now gives them, hey, I have saved you. I poured my grace upon you. Now here's how I want you to live. And after that, he gives them further instructions on some laws and regulations that need to be put in place amongst this newly freed nation, just how to operate. And then in Exodus 25, Moses is still on the mountaintop, God begins instructions about how to build the tabernacle. This um, large tent in which God's glory would dwell amongst his people and all the elements along with it. The Ark of the Covenant, the table, the golden lampstand, the outside dimensions, the bronze altar, and on and on. And then he gets to uh, Exodus 29, I think. He starts talking about all the garments the priests have to wear inside the tabernacle and the process of setting up the high priest apart from everybody else so that he can make sacrifices on behalf of Israel. All in all, if you've come across this in your Bible reading plan, it's an exhausting stretch of Scripture. Unbelievably overwhelming, in a sense, detail on this, uh, on this instruction. So um, again, we have a picture up as kind of based on the um, instructions what the tabernacle would look like. It'd be this place where they'd be able to kind of put up and then take down and travel and put up as they go. It's a large outer tent. You have all these elements within, and then you get into the inside of the tabernacle to this pl holy place, then the holy of holies, where the priests and high priests would go and make sacrifices. Um, and, and it would be the place, this is important, where God's glory would dwell amongst Israel. And I just, even in that, there's something for us there because it tells us something about God. And it tells us something about the means through which God would have a relationship with his people. Initially, it tells us about the holiness of God. These detailed, overwhelming instruction on how to set this up tells us about the holiness of God, that God is holy. You've been around church for a while, you hear that, it doesn't even move you probably, it doesn't even really stir anything within you. He's that God's holy because he's holy. I've heard that word since I was a kid. But holy means completely set apart. A creator who is distinct from his creation. Totally pure and perfect in every way. Holiness is what gives God his godness. He's not like us. God is not just like this slightly better version of us. It's his holiness and complete just otherness that makes him a God worth worshiping. God is not made in our image. We are made in his image. God doesn't exist for us. He does not surrender to us. We exist for him. We exist for his glory. We surrender to him. It's not our glorious grace that is so awesome. It's his. Like, are you following me? Like, this is God is holy, like just completely set apart. Kevin DeYoung, uh, pastor, author, puts it this way. You can't make sense of the Bible without understanding that God is holy. And this holy God is intent on making a holy people to live with him forever in a holy heaven. 
And therefore, when it comes to the place through which his glory would dwell amongst his people coming out of the nation of Egypt, Israel can't just throw a tent together and go, God, dwell here. It might keep rain out. It might not. Or, or God didn't just come in and also say, hey, I, I did it for you. I, I did it. Okay, I, I just did it. I don't trust you guys. I did it. That's not what Exodus 1.31 tells us. It would be a place through which God's grace would flow. It was so important to have this tabernacle. Because I talked about the, the, in chapter 29, the ordination of the priests, that these men would be set apart to make sacrifices on behalf of Israel. Well, what do you mean sacrifices? Why do we need sacrifices? Um, the reason why we needed bloody sacrifices and killing innocent, pure animals is because sin is a big deal. See, it's not because God doesn't care about animals that he did sacrifices, that God cares a lot about sin and sin that needs to be atoned for. And so to the detail, again, I'm encouraging you to just go back and read out. It's exhausting how much had to be followed perfectly, like to the centimeter and to the color. And it tells us that a people who are corrupt with sin cannot just stand before a holy God and expect to live. So it was through the shedding of blood that forgiveness of sins would be offered to Israel. And once a year, the high priest of Israel, Aaron would be the first, would make the most important sacrifice on the day of atonement, an atonement for sin. So that, that's the big idea of the tabernacle. And then eventually this tabernacle, when they're in the promised land, would become the temple in Jerusalem. That's the whole idea of it in the Old Testament. It's the means through which a holy God can dwell amongst a sinful people. And this presence, this relationship, would be God's witness to the world. He told Israel back in Genesis 12, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. You guys will be my witness to all the nations of the world. So at this point, you might be asking, Okay, I thought this was a sermon series about vision of the church. Why are we getting a history lesson? And that's a great question. I appreciate you asking. Um, These vital Old Testament processes, they weren't just busy reading that we don't have to worry about anymore. The consecration of the priests, the forming of the tabernacle, the animal sacrifices, all of them, along with the rest of the Old Testament, are always pointing towards something. And we, at this point in history, have the benefit of knowing what they were pointing to. That they all point to the blazing center of our church and the blazing center of what it's like to be a Christian. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see the book of Hebrews, it's in the New Testament. It tells us that Jesus is the great high priest. What's that mean? It means that he was the one who came and made the final sacrifice, a sacrifice for all for the atonement of sins by laying down his own life. Now time it's not an animal, now it's the son of God and he died on the cross and he shed his blood. And it's through the person and work of Jesus Christ today that a holy God can still dwell amongst a sinful people. And those who confess of their sin, who place their faith and trust in Jesus, can be reconciled forever to a holy God. And as an assurance of this conversion, the Bible tells us that God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell all believers, which is why Paul in the New Testament says that your body is a what of the Holy Spirit? It's a temple 
Just like that Old Testament imagery that the God's Spirit dwells within you as He dwelled in the tabernacle, then the temple in the Old Testament. And now believers in this church, believers in the body of Christ, are together to what? To just kind of hang out and wait till glory? No. To join together in order to be a witness to the world. Just like Israel had the commission that they failed miserably at in the Old Testament to make disciples to the glory of God. And so I say all that to say this. God cares about how his church operates. He doesn't say, just go figure it out. He doesn't say, I'll just go do it myself. He cares about how the church operates today just like he cared about how the tabernacle was instructed in the book of Exodus. Because now it's the church made up of the priesthood of believers. Jeff preached on that a couple weeks ago. The people in which God's glory will dwell, that disciples are made, and the witness to the world goes out. So here's why I'm going to go back to Exodus 31 now. Because here's the thing. While God is giving instructions to Moses, you notice he never told Moses how it was going to happen. So he starts in all these instructions, and the tabernacle, and the Ark of the Covenant, and the lampstand, and the utensils, and all this crazy detail, and he never tells them how. Chapters and chapters, thousands of words of detailed instruction. And I imagine, maybe this is me reading into the text, but I imagine at some point Moses was just like, oh my goodness. Like, is he writing this down? I don't even know, like, what? Is the Holy Spirit just giving him a good memory? But like, at some point he had to think, how is this going to happen? We are a nation traveling in the wilderness. Where are we going to get all this? How are we going to do all this? Again, maybe I'm reading into this text because I am somebody who often, I feel like more than the average person, find myself in situations where I just struggle to understand things. Like things that I think other people think I should know. And I'll be just totally honest, it usually has something to do with fixing something or, <laughs> or cars. All right, so we, we, I've been in a situation, and we had a Toyota Corolla. We were bringing it to the mechanic pretty often. And what happens is you go to a mechanic, thank God he's somebody that we trusted, um, and, and he would kind of lay it all open and say, okay, here's some things that's going on. You're going to have to make a decision as to what the work you have to do. But the way he would talk to me would act like I knew what he was talking about. So he starts throwing, I, I'm not even going to use these words right, but he's like, all right, you said the carburetor that goes into the fluid tank here, but then that messes with the rotary belt around, and I don't know what you want to do with that belt. Most cars don't have that belt. And I'm, I'm just going, yep, yep, yeah, right, the rotary, I know, I know, I know. And because I'm too embarrassed and just ashamed to be like, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, I'm a moron, all right? I know where the steering wheel is. And then just starts getting a little fuzzy after that, okay? So just tell me what I need to do. I will pay you, all right? So, but, so maybe I'm reading that wrongly, but I have to imagine Moses is overwhelmed. I have to imagine that God intentionally is giving him all this before he tells him, how is this going to happen? I, I imagine Moses is like, man, I can't figure all this out. Who am I going to do this? I don't know who, who does utensils. <laughs> and then Exodus 31 comes and like an oasis in the desert God tells him that he has raised up and equipped Bezalel and filled him with the Spirit of God. By the way, the first time the Spirit is mentioned in the book of Exodus. And he's, he's filled him with what? Ability and knowledge and intelligence and all craftsmanship. At that moment, Moses just had to be like, yes! 
that this wasn't on him. And not even that, he's raised up a holy ab, and, I've, and then I've given all men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. An oasis in the desert for Moses. Here's the headline point of, of this passage of this sermon that I want to unpack and then apply to us today. God's Spirit enables us to serve God's people for God's glory. There's one thing you write down today, one thing you remember. God's Spirit enables us to serve God's people for God's glory. That was true in the wilderness thousands of years ago at Mount Sinai, and it's true in the suburbs of North Jersey today. So let me unpack that statement with two points. First, the Spirit is needed to accomplish the work of God. There are some very clear parallels between uh, this work of building and creating the tabernacle and then God's creation to the world. Again, God tells Moses about Bezalel, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. First time in the book of Exodus that's talked about explicitly like that, but it's not the first time in the Bible. In fact, we're told about this at the very beginning of the Bible, the first two verses up on the screen, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Listen, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was present when the world was created in the same way God has sent the Spirit of God upon, upon these men to build the tabernacle. And, and in this way, the tabernacle would be this little Eden where God would dwell amongst his people just like he dwelled with Adam and Eve. And then further, after the creation of this world, we are told on the seventh day in the book of Genesis that God rested. And the passage directly after this one, if you keep reading in Exodus 31, is God's instruction to Moses on the observation of the Sabbath, where God's people, this will always be an aspect of God's people, they will work hard and they will rest well. God's people will work hard and they will rest well. So God is carrying out this work and he's enabled by the Spirit, but this time he goes through the skill of men that he has gifted for the work. You know what I love about this? We never hear about those two guys the rest of the Bible. They were just normal dudes. Nothing really special about them. They were just from different tribes, no real distinction. They were not the leaders. They were not the warriors. They would just be these no-namers that God would use to build the tabernacle where his glory would dwell. I just love how that's how God works. I'm just going to gift these little no-name men, and they're going to do this great, great work. Their skill was not their own. And it wasn't to be used primarily to make much of themselves. It was given to them so they can use it to do the work of God. One more observation there. Uh, God didn't just give them ability to build things. Do you see the things he gave them? The, th the type of gifts? He gave them the gift of knowledge. The gift of intelligence. Not just the gift to build. And a gifting is only good in that it is accompanied with the wisdom needed on how to best deploy it. Leads me to point number two. The Spirit is needed to carry out the work of God. 
So it was needed to accomplish, but then also needed to carry out the work of God. Because you see, it's not just enough to contain and have giftings. We also need the guidance of the Spirit to actually use it, to carry it out, to be obedient and disciplined in utilizing it to serve God's people to God's glory. So maybe a modern-day parallel will help us illustrate this. Um, There's often something you'll hear in the world of sports where a professional athlete, doesn't even have to be a pro athlete, could be just a really good high school athlete or college athlete, you'll hear people say, she just has natural talent. Or, 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 or he is just a gifted athlete, like, he, like just born with this. Like, he, like she just has this ability that just flows in this grace about her on the field or on the court that she's just a natural athlete. And the reality is most, especially professional athletes, They're not just there because they've worked hard. They're there because they have some kind of gifting or a body that's allowed them to get there. All right, so I'm a big basketball fan. Um, Shaquille O'Neal would not have been Shaq if he was 5'11". All right, you'd have never heard his name. He was 7'2". And you know what? He had no role in that. He was not growing up to be like, you know what? (laughs) 7'2". I think that's going to get me there. He had no control. That was just a natural ability, natural body that he grew into. And if you want to play, especially professional basketball, height matters. Length matters. So I, I played Division three basketball, and, and a question that I would get asked is, like, what, what's the difference between a D3 athlete and a D1 athlete? For, for basketball, most important is, is just length and athletic ability. I just wasn't long enough, was not athletic enough that a lot of these guys or girls that could go play at a D1 level because they're just longer and they're taller and they're stronger and they're more athletic. So it takes kind of natural ability to do it. But that's not all. And here's the point. Genetics and talent alone does not make you a professional athlete. It also takes a lot of hard work. So to go back to Shaquille O'Neal, yes, he was 7'2", but just being 7'2 did not get him to the NBA. He had to work hard. He had to have the motivation to use that body to discipline himself to work harder than anyone else so that he can go be dominant on the court. He needed the motivation to carry it out. And in the same way, the people of Israel need the Spirit of God to use their craftsmanship and be disciplined to carry it out by the Spirit of God for God's glory and not their own. Here's why this is important. Do you remember what happens in Exodus 32? Do you know what happens next? It's a disaster. Moses has been on top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, all this time. And he's coming down the mountain, and he's all excited. He's got these two tablets under his arms with the Ten Commandments that have been heard from God. He has instructions on how to build this tabernacle where God's glory would dwell. He comes down the mountain, excited to share this, and what does he find? That the people of Israel got restless because Moses was just gone too long. And they got sick of waiting And so they convinced Aaron, who was number two down there, the man who would be the first high priest, to form their own God and worship that God and offer sacrifices to that God, a golden calf, a God of their own creation. But do you notice that how they did it 
It required ability. It required skill. They used gold jewelry that they took from other people and they crafted a golden calf. I imagine that's not easy to do. They used skill and they used ability and they used it to disobey the Lord for their own glory instead of using it for God's glory. You see, just having skill is not enough. We also need a heart of obedience to carry out in a way that does the work of God. And this was true back then and it's true today. God's people will always have a choice. Am I going to use my gifting to make much of me and my glory? Or am I going to use it and deploy it to make much of him? And if it wasn't for Moses' intercession on their behalf after that wickedness, if it wasn't for God's grace and being willing to forgive, Israel would have just been wiped out then and there. That's what the Bible tells us. But, but through Moses' intercession on their behalf, the covenant was renewed. He went back up the mountain. Uh, tablets were remade. Comes back down. And then Exodus 35, 36, we see Bezalel is still the one to lead the men of Israel to construct the tabernacle. So here's how I want to finish. I want to apply these biblical truths in Exodus to our pillar of Christ-centered service in the church to be a means through which disciples are made to the glory of God. So let me restate the statement that is hovering over all. God's Spirit enables us to serve God's people for God's glory. So quickly, go over those same two points and see how we can apply that today. First, the Spirit empowers us to accomplish the work to build up the body. As we spoke about earlier, the new covenant, the new covenant in God's Spirit to indwell all believers who believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells within you, and then God's Spirit is within the overall church, the body of Christ, in order to build up one another through the gifts and service of its people. Let me show you this, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, all different gifts, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Saints meaning the members of the church. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here's what we know from our Bibles. Again, the Holy Spirit indwells all who believe upon conversion. And then the Holy Spirit equips all believers with ability to do what? To build up the body of Christ. Do you see this connection? That God uses one another in the church, not just the leaders, uses everybody in the church with all of our different gifts to build up the body of Christ as we all mature to the fullness of Christ. What's another way of saying that? Making disciples. God uses one another in the church as they grow as disciples to build up other disciples. That, that word building is intentional. Coming back from the Old Testament, this building and crafting of the tabernacle is now carried to the New Testament of building up the priesthood of believers, building up the church. Our process of following Jesus Christ, and that is God's master design. Hear me, as you grow, part of your growth hinges on the gifts that he has given you to help others grow. 
There is no growing in maturity without serving the body. A pouring yourself out for one another's good. It just can't happen. You cannot grow. You'll be stunted in your growth if you're not serving others. That's why we say all the time around here, nobody's an island. Nobody can do this by themselves. Because even if you think, well, I'm good. I don't really need other people. I can follow Jesus myself. Now God's not using you to grow anybody else. So now you're not growing and you're not good. There is no Christianity without the church. And there is no faith without one another to build us up. So now it's at this point that many people will ask a very natural next question. Um, okay, what's my spiritual gift? Okay, you've convinced me that I need to deploy it, I need to build up the body of Christ. Well, what should I do? I need to know where I'm gifted so I know where I can serve. And some of you, just through life or maturity and, and growing in Christ, that you know where you're gifted and you know that, okay, i got to serve here because this is where God's gifted me, this is what I enjoy to do, this is what I'm good at. But I find many, maybe most, people are really confused. I don't know what my gift is. I, I don't know where I should go. And, and so oftentimes what you'll hear at this point is um, encur an encouragement to go take a spiritual gift assessment. I guarantee if you've been to church more than five years, you've taken one of these. And, and you go online, and there's this countless number of versions of, uh, where, where you take it, and you have a bunch of questions, and there's some multiple choice questions and answers, and you get to the end, and boom, you have the spiritual gift of discernment. And, and uh, to be honest, recently, like very recently, I've kind of changed my tune towards these assessments. I, I, I don't want to say don't take them. I just don't think they're that helpful. Because here's the reality, we answer those most often not based on what's true of us, but what we want to be true of us. And it can get distorted very quickly. And not to mention, there's no one assessment with a few questions and like three answers to each question that you can really understand this fits me and my life because you've got to choose one and it might not really fit you. But then here's what happens. Here's where it goes wrong, is that we find, boom, I had the spiritual gift of discernment. And so where can I serve? And then somebody from the church or somebody around you says, hey, like we, we could use some just help in the nursery. And you say, sorry, I can't do that. <laughs> this assessment did not say I had the gift of teaching children. I had the gift of discernment. Um, I got to wait for another one. And, and, and what happens is um, we're, we're actually not, that could actually keep us from serving gone wrong. So let me offer a better assessment. Let me offer an alternative. God puts you in a local body of believers. And if you're visiting with us this morning, I encourage you, wherever your home church is or wherever it's going to be, to be a part of that body of believers. And the answer to the question, where should I serve? Listen, wherever there's a need. That's your answer. God's people stepping into spaces where the church needs help, and God will use you because you're stepping into where there's a need to build up the body of Christ. And yes, over time, as you're with this body, other people, God will use other people to affirm you in certain areas, to kind of speak into your life and say, hey, I think I noticed a gifting here. There seems to be a lot of fruit that comes from this. Have you ever explored that? Have you ever thought about that? That's a true assessment. A body of believers that you're doing life with can assess you far better than a multiple choice test online. And over time, 
God will cultivate that gift within you that then you'll be able to find the spaces and the lanes to use it all the more. Second, I have to move very quickly here. The Spirit empowers us to carry it out. So he will gift you to accomplish the work building up the body, and then he will empower you to carry it out. And this is the decisive step of Christ-centered service, because you can have all the giftings in the world, but we all need to be empowered to actually utilize that in the right way. It's a matter of obedience to go all in and say, I'm in on this. I want to play a part in this. And the decision to roll up the proverbial sleeves and get going. Church, this is a call to serve. Not just because a church needs help, but because it's a very important component to your discipleship. And it's an exhortation and a reminder that you growing in the faith... You growing in Jesus Christ hinges on your willingness to serve others, to help them grow in the faith. And what's awesome, we talked about how do you love others in the church. There is a countless number of ways you can love others in the church. And in the same way, there's a countless number of ways you can serve others in the body, where we are coming in each week just looking for all, in all of our creativity, all our winsome ability to do so. How can I serve you? How can I see a need and address it? So there's organic ways we can serve one another, countless number of ways. But then there's also um, what I would just call structural pathways to serve others here at Grace Church. And the primary lane for that is part of one of our serving teams. Each team, especially in our corporate gathering on Sunday morning, I always say I think there's somewhere between 35 and 40 people, uh, volunteers that are needed each and every week just to make Sunday morning happen. One service. And each team plays a direct role in making disciples. Every team is needed to enable others to gather corporately and worship together. So we have on our website, we have at Grace Connect, we just have a very simple sheet of all of our serving teams at Grace Church. And and so here's um, the encouragement. Here's the exhortation. Every person who attends Grace Church should be on at least one team. And not just to fill a need and help us out, but that it's an opportunity also for you to grow. And your discipleship will be stunted without it. And I will just tell you this, and if you have an ability, and if you have time, if you have a gifting to be able to do more than one, do more than one. Like, you're not limited. But I'm just going to tell you this. If everybody in our church, I've crunched the numbers. If everybody in our church served on one team, we'd we'd have to be turning people away. We'd have too many. And I'll tell you right now, we're not turning people away. That there is need, and my prayer for you is that you would see and understand that I want to roll up my sleeves and get going in this to the glory of God, to the good of others, and for my own personal growth. Because God empowers us like he empowered Bezalel in Exodus 31 to bless others to not make much of us. And that is the opposite of today's cultural mandate. So that quote I shared at the beginning, you know why that was so shocking? Because the whole culture goes the other way than that one guy. By and large, the message of our society is go and promote yourself, not go and help others. And we are like, we're in like the incubator phase of what social media is doing to all of us. We like, we're still just not really sure how, what the long-term effects are. But social media, best-selling books thrive on the idea that it's about you first and foremost, not others. And you've got to take care of you. 
And I'm not talking just like the worldly evil books. I'm talking Christian books, church, by Christian publishers. Joel Osteen's top three bestsellers, Your Best Life Now. It's your time. Become a better you. Women, you guys are getting this thrown at you all the time. You know what a Christian book that is put out by a Christian publisher that's on the New York Times bestseller list right now? I've talked to a lot of women in our church and that they have at least been recommended to them or they've been hearing a lot about it. It's a book called Girl, Wash Your Face. Let me share you. It's a Christian publisher. Let me show you, share three quotes. You are meant to be the hero of your own story. You and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. Third, you should be the very first of your priorities. This is the message we're immersed in. And in our social media, individual, branded society, I just want you to be watchful of what and who is discipling you. Be careful of what you immerse yourself in, tweets and blogs and books and podcasts. I'm not saying avoid them. I just told you up front, I'm all in on them. But when you come across them, only approach them if this is the number one book you're reading. The Bible will interpret everything else. Don't let other books and podcasts interpret the way you view the Bible. And Christ-centered service is the evidence of a person who loves by putting others in front of themselves. Here's how I want to close. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Listen to these words. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, listen, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The most loving and mature Christians in the world and in this church are not those that think less of themselves, but it's those who think of themselves less. And they do it for the glory of God, and they do it for the good of others. And it's only when we're empowered by the Holy Spirit through our faith in Jesus Christ that we can actually do this He's our motivation. He's our power. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray.